Friday, January 6th, began a celebratory point in the liturgical calendar known as Epiphany. The Epiphany season spans the seven weeks from the Feast of Epiphany to Ash Wednesday and the start of Lent. The word Epiphany means a, rele a revelatory manifestation of a divine being. Therefore, on the feast day of Epiphany, which was this past Friday, we celebrated the manifestation of the divine nature of Jesus revealed to the Gentiles as represented by the visit of the Magi recorded in Matthew chapter 2. And while that account is significant in the biblical narrative, and if you look at your worship guide this morning, you can see that there uh, on the front cover. While that is important, it is not the only epiphany of Jesus recorded in the gospel accounts. In fact, there are three main epiphanies that the church has historically celebrated with feasting. Uh, as we did on Friday night, the epiphany of the Christ associated with the visit of the Magi. Also, the epiphany of the Christ at the wedding of Cana and the epiphany of the Christ at Jesus's baptism. Furthermore, Bible students and scholars alike have noted that in addition to these celebrated epiphanies, the gospel of St. John presents us with seven epiphanies of the Christ or seven accounts in which someone acknowledges the manifestation of Jesus's divine nature. For example, within the narrative of John's gospel, someone will often declare a statement like, we know that this is indeed the savior of the world, or we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so this epiphany season, we are going to explore the seven epiphanies of the Christ presented in the gospel of St. John. And this morning's sermon text comes from John chapter 1, verses 30 through 34, which is an epiphany that John the Baptist experiences. In chapter 1 of St. John's Gospel, John the Baptist, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, is involved with two epiphanies, one in which he personally experiences his own epiphany and declares, this is the Son of God. And then there's a second one in which he states, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and others experience their own epiphanies from this. But today we are going to consider the epiphany in verse 34, which says, this is the Son of God. And in this sermon, I want to accomplish three things. Number one, I want to provide an exposition of these verses in which we all understand its meaning or the meaning of these verses. And then second, I want to show the significance and importance of the epiphany throughout church history. And then finally, I want to conclude by considering how the epiphany here in John chapter 1 directly influences you and me. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to John chapter 1, verses 30 through 34. I'm going to read that text and then pray a prayer of illumination. 
John chapter 1, verse 30. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Would you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you will reveal to us the significance and importance of this epiphany attested by the Holy Spirit. Father, help us to rightly understand your word and then live in light of this knowledge. We pray this by the power of the Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. To begin, let us draw our attention to the meaning of this text. So first, let's consider verse 30. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. The larger context of verse 30 is the baptism of Jesus, recorded for us in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, and Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. Matthew, Luke, and John all recall a certain interaction between John the Baptist and his followers, which led up to the baptism of Jesus, in which John the Baptist states the following, quote, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. By these words, John the Baptist acknowledges the imminent coming of the Christ, who is greater and far superior to himself. And verse 30 is another way of communicating this same point. The Christ ranks above him because he existed before him. He is both mightier and greater. The difference is that verse 30 explicitly identifies Jesus as the Christ. And John the Apostle acknowledges the same chronological order and ranking by stating the following in the prologue to this gospel. He says this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. So here in verse 30, there is an acknowledgement on the part of John the Baptist that Jesus is the Christ. Now, draw your attention to verses 31 through 33 and consider how John the Baptist concludes all of this about Jesus. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, 
This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The statement, I myself did not know him, probably seems odd to you. And that is because we know from the Gospel of Luke that Jesus and John the Baptist were cousins. Furthermore, we read in Luke chapter 1 that John the Baptist, while in his mother's womb, in some way understood that Jesus was the Christ. Also, Elizabeth, his mother, recognized that Mary was the mother of God, the Theotokos. And we read in Luke chapter 1 the following. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So with all of that, what does John the Baptist mean when he says, I myself did not know him? Well, there are two plausible explanations. The first is simply that Jesus and John the Baptist had zero interaction with one another prior to Jesus's baptism and following their contact as babies inside their mother's wombs. Luke tells us that John the Baptist grew into adulthood and then lived in the wilderness until the time of his public ministry. Therefore, the first explanation is that John didn't recognize the physical appearance of Jesus when he saw him. While that is plausible, this explanation doesn't fit the account that was read to us this morning in Matthew chapter 3 in our gospel lesson. We heard this read this morning. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. If John the Baptist meant to say that he didn't know Jesus or he didn't recognize his physical appearance prior to his baptism, this account here in Matthew chapter 3 says otherwise. Because John the Baptist clearly recognized Jesus and understood who he was, therefore he said, I shouldn't be baptizing you, Jesus. You need to be baptizing me. But there is a second explanation, which is reasonable, and it fits the context here in John's gospel. And that is this. John the Baptist's wording is not only communicating, but mm -hmm. emphasizing the Holy Spirit's work in marking out Jesus as the Christ. In other words, John the Baptist is saying, not on my own accord did I determine that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. Instead, the same voice that called me to my ministry is the same voice that designated Jesus as the Christ. And he made this known to me by a sign. 
This explanation is plausible and coincides with what John the Baptist is stressing in the moment, and that is this. The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus, and that is what distinguished him or marked him as the Christ. Not John's personal opinion, not his gut feeling, not his own personal desires. No, his point is this. Jesus is the Christ, and this fact was attested by the Holy Spirit descending upon him and remaining with him. And because John the Baptist witnessed the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus at his baptism, he states this declarative epiphany in the next verse. Look at verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. In the original Greek, both verbs seen and borne witness are perfect active indicative, meaning that John the Baptist's declaration is certain. He is not suggesting, he's not speculating or assuming. Instead, he is authoritatively stating Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. And he is able to speak emphatically about the deity of Jesus because of the two significant Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled when the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism. And so the first prophecy was read in our Old Testament lesson this morning. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, we heard these words read to us. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. In Isaiah, the designation my servant is a messianic reference. Throughout the writing of Isaiah, the servant of the Lord is distinguished as the Christ by what he will do and what he will accomplish. Notably, it is this suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 who was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The servant that would famously accomplish this atoning work is the same servant that is referred to in Isaiah chapter 42. However, the point of emphasis in chapter 42 is that the Messiah will have the Holy Spirit placed upon him by the Father or anointed with the Spirit. And that is exactly the event in which John the Baptist was an eyewitness to. He stated in John chapter 1 verse 32, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. So the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 42 makes John the Baptist's declaration here in verse 34 certain and firm. He has, in fact, seen the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, the Christ. With that, verse 34 contains a textual variant. In some manuscripts, the phrase is recorded as, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the eklektos of God, the chosen one of God, or the elect of God. 
Now, in the Gospel of John, Son of God is the popular designation for Jesus, which makes it plausible that the original autograph would have used the phrase Son of God. However, as we've just acknowledged, Isaiah chapter 42, being an important prophecy in understanding the significance of the Holy Spirit coming upon the Messiah, Isaiah 42 uses the word chosen or the designated designation chosen. So in verse 1, we read, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. Therefore, if John the Baptist had Isaiah 42 in mind, which he most likely did, then the electos of God, the chosen of God, is most likely the noun that was used in the original autograph. But regardless, either way, if it's son of God or chosen of God, John the Baptist is stating that Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, Jesus is both the Son of God and the Chosen One of God. The point here is that this epiphany marks out an important manifestation of Jesus' divine being as the Spirit descended upon him. Jesus was revealed as the Christ. The second prophecy that was fulfilled at Jesus' baptism, which again John the Baptist was an eyewitness to, is found in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, which reads this way. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This text in Ezekiel is concerned with the coming of the new covenant and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. According to Ezekiel, the image of being washed with physical water is an illustration and a sign of what will happen in the spiritual baptism of the Holy Spirit. And with that, God gave John the Baptist two signs to confirm the deity of Christ. The first we've already established, and that was the descending of the Holy Spirit upon him. The second was the indication that the one of whom the Spirit descends upon is also the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So not only did John the Baptist witness the servant of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 42, the chosen one, but he also witnessed the mediator of the new covenant there in the depths and shallows of the Jordan River. Therefore, because John the Baptist bore witness to these signs, he authoritatively states, Jesus is the Son of God. With that, we've given our attention to the meaning of the text. Now let's consider the implications that this epiphany John chapter 1, verse 34, has had on the church historically. Here in the Gospel of John, there are two important figures who were leaders in the early church. And if you haven't noticed, both of them are named John. You have John the Baptist, who we've been talking about as we've considered his epiphany in verse 34. Then there is the author of the Gospel, 
St. John, who is often referred to as John the Evangelist, as a way to distinguish him from John the Baptist. John the Evangelist and Apostle wrote the Gospel of John and was an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus, as well as a disciple of John the Baptist. We will look at this in more detail next week, but in verses 35 through 42 of John chapter 1, two disciples of John the Baptist are mentioned. John the Evangelist refers to one of them by name, Andrew, the brother of Peter. But the second disciple is left unnamed, unidentified, remains anonymous. And it is widely accepted that John the Evangelist is the second unnamed disciple mentioned with Andrew, as this follows the pattern of John's desire to remain inconspicuous throughout his writing. In fact, John doesn't reveal his personal identity until the end of his gospel. And so uh, it is widely accepted that it was Andrew and John the Evangelist who were the disciples of John the Baptist involved in this conversation about Jesus, the Son of God. With that being said, the epiphany of John the Baptist here in verse 34 played an important role in developing John the Apostle's later writing, and particularly his epistle of 1 John. So in 1 John chapter 5, verse 5 through 9, John the Evangelist, John the Apostle, wrote the following. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he has borne concerning his Son. In these verses... St. John, the evangelist, states that the Holy Spirit testified to the validity of Jesus as the Christ at his baptism. This is a reference to the water. And at his crucifixion. This is a reference to the blood. In context, his point is that anyone who believes in Jesus as the Son of God can have confidence that they have received eternal life because the Holy Spirit has attested to the divinity of Jesus. These verses in St. John's Gospel and his epistle, which again were influenced by John the Baptist, by his epiphany, would go on to serve the church in three major doctrinal controversies. So in the middle of the first century AD, there lived a contemporary of St. John whose name was Serenthus. He was a Gnostic philosopher who opposed the teaching of the apostles. Serenthus postulated a heresy in which he distinguished between Jesus and the Christ. In his mind, those were two different people. In short, he denied the deity of Jesus. He claimed that Jesus was just a man. According to Serenthus, the Christ descended upon Jesus at his baptism and then directed him in his ministry, but departed from him 
at the crucifixion. The early church would combat this heresy by citing John the Baptist's account in which Jesus was not made to be the Christ through his baptism, but rather marked out and revealed as the eternal Son of God at his baptism. Furthermore, John the Evangelist bolstered this position by stating in his epistle that Jesus' divinity was in fact affirmed and not conferred by the Holy Spirit at the baptism. Ultimately, Serenthus was proved to be an error, and his false teaching did not prevail over the doctrine of the apostles. The second instance in which the church has leaned heavily upon the epiphany of John the Baptist is against a religious sect called the Ebionites. Similar to Serenthus, the Ebionites embraced an erroneous Christology, understanding Jesus to be a mere man who, by virtue of his righteousness in keeping the law of God, was then chosen by God to be the Messiah. Again, the words of John the Baptist and John the Evangelist prove this teaching to be an error by demonstrating the Holy Spirit's affirmation that Jesus was revealed as the Christ at his baptism, and again, not conferred or made the Christ at his baptism. The third occasion in which the words of John the Baptist and John the Apostle would play an important role would be against the teaching of docetism, particularly in the fourth century AD. Docetism is the false teaching that Jesus did not have a human body. Simply stated, docetism affirms the divinity of Jesus, but denies his humanity. Essentially, docetism is a heresy at the other end of the spectrum in relation to Serenthus and the Ebionites. In this case, John the Evangelist, following words in first chapter, or excuse me, first John chapter five, would be used to affirm not only Jesus' divinity, but his humanity. So John says this in first John chapter five. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, which attests to his divinity, as we saw in John the Baptist's declaration, but he goes on, but by the water and the blood. The reference to the blood in this verse is a clear indication that Jesus had a human body, which bled real blood at his crucifixion. Again, First John chapter 5 was influenced, at least in part, by John the Baptist, and therefore his epiphany in John chapter 1, verse 34, not only played a role in combating heresy that questioned the divine nature, but his epiphany also strengthened the doctrine of Jesus' humanity. This epiphany that John the Baptist had, this declaration, this realization that Jesus is the Son of God, was truly influential and instrumental in the life of the church. Uh, not only in these three cases, but particularly in general, when we talk about the distinction between the Holy Spirit's affirmation of Jesus as being divine, as opposed to the Holy Spirit conferring divinity to Jesus. And this is why the Nicene Creed appeals to the eternal nature of Jesus, 
He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. Jesus was eternally God. There wasn't a point in history in which he became God or had that conferred to him. The teaching and epiphany here of John the Baptist is also important in understanding the church's dialogue concerning Mary being the mother of God, the Theotokos. The church fathers in the West employed the phrase Theotokos, mother of God, in opposition to the Eastern fathers who wanted to speak of Jesus as the Christokos or excuse me, Mary as the Christokos. She was the bearer of Christ. Now, if you're new to this conversation, Mary, the mother of God, may cause a little hesitation in you. That, you may not, that may not sit comfortably with you because you're thinking the father did not have a mother. But in context, in history, nobody was questioning the eternal nature of the father. No one was suggesting that the father had a mother, which being questioned is, is Jesus divine, eternally divine? And so the Western church fathers, in an absolute checkmate move, used the phrase theotokos to slam the door on multiple heresies. So as we already saw with Serenthus, by saying Mary is the mother of God, the bearer of God, means that Jesus, even in the womb, was deity. Not at his baptism, but in the womb. And the point of the church fathers was to establish that even before the womb, eternally speaking, he was God. Therefore, Mary carried both natures in her, Jesus's divine nature and his human nature. And using this phrase, Theotokos, also slammed the door on the other spectrum, that Jesus was just divine, but didn't have a human nature. Because if Mary is the mother of God, Jesus actually came through her birth canal. He was birthed. He had a belly button. He was fed and nourished. His humanity was fed and nourished by Mary, both in the womb and outside of the womb. And so this phrase, Theotokos, is actually, like I said, a checkmate move in which it slams the door on any heresy which would deny Jesus's divinity or his humanity. And for all of that, John the Baptist and John the Evangelist gave the church so much language in order to speak to these heresies. And so this epiphany in John chapter 1 verse 34 is very important in understanding Christ is Jesus, and Jesus has always been God. He has always had divinity, eternally begotten of the Father. And on the reverse side, he did, in fact, have a human nature. With all of that, let's turn to the conclusion. How does John the Baptist's epiphany directly influence you and me? How does all of this come to bear on you and I? As we consider what all of this means, you and I need to recognize that John the Baptist's epiphany validates and affirms what we confess as a church about Jesus. 
And that is this. He is the eternally begotten son of God. John the evangelist said it this way in 1 John chapter 5. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Confidence in Jesus as the Christ should be our first takeaway this morning. John the Baptist's epiphany that Jesus is the Son of God should give us certainty in who Jesus is. But as John the Evangelist explains, it should also take us to the next level and give us confidence in the eternal life that we have received in Jesus, because he is, in fact, divine. Second, as we consider this epiphany in John chapter 1, verse 34, we should also recognize that no one comes to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ on their own. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul explains that you and I cannot understand the things of God unless we are aided by the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. We also see this to be true in Matthew's gospel when Peter made the following confession about Jesus. Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And in that scene, Jesus was quick to point out to Peter that he did not reach that conclusion on his own. It wasn't his genius or his deep meditation or his thoughtfulness. None of that revealed it to Peter. Said it was God who revealed those things to him. So, in other words, no one experiences an epiphany without the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. No one comes to the point of, aha, yes, Jesus is the Christ on their own. Therefore, you and I should be patient with our loved ones who have not yet believed. Also, we should be persistent in prayer asking the Father to reveal the Son by the Spirit to those whom we are praying for. Finally, in light of this truth, in light of this epiphany, as we have experienced our own epiphanies, in which we have said, yes, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Son of God, as we have done that, you and I should not boast in our faith, or boast in our intellect, or boast in our reason, but rather in gratitude, we should rejoice that the Father has revealed the Son to us. Dear saints, in closing, I pray that you have gained a helpful understanding of this passage this morning. I hope that the historical application of these words from John the Baptist have been helpful and meaningful for you. But most importantly, I pray that you would have confidence in who Jesus is, the eternal begotten Son of God. And in that, I pray that you would have confidence in the eternal life that you have received by grace through faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, 
and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.